Unless you truly, truly uh, 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 enjoy that. It's hard to get up when it gets tough. And if we can explore, again, get back in touch with ourselves, the environment, the world around us and other people, because we're not worried about all this other stuff, that's the opportunity in human optimization. Hey folks, Commander Mark Devine coming at you with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Thank you so much for coming back and supporting us and listening and, you know, soaking up all this really cool insight. And today we're going to be talking to my friend, Dr. Andy Walsh, who is Director of Human Performance at Red Bull. What an interesting, interesting job. Uh, Andy, thanks for joining us. Super appreciate your time today. I know you're really busy. But before I you know, more formally introduce Andy, let me remind you, please, to go to iTunes and rate the podcast. It's very helpful because that way folks who've never heard of us can find us when they search for other people like Tim Ferriss or you know, other leaders in performance and uh, training and, and that type of stuff. So at any rate, that, that would be very helpful. And also uh, remember to support our sponsors. So Andy, who I just met recently, is a, a global leader in human performance. Like I mentioned, he's the director of high performance at Red Bull. There he works with tons of elite athletes and teams and other you know, leaders in this field. And he supervises a team of scientists, engineers, physicians, and technologists to kind of develop elite performance models and define intersections with technologies and platforms for ways to really kind of bring performance more toward the masses, I think, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that we're going to have a really interesting discussion. Andy, thank you very much for your time. Before we get into, like, you and I want to go right to talking about uh, human performance and technology and hacking creativity, but let's learn a little bit more about who you are. You're uh, Australian by birth, right? Yeah, yeah, born and bred in Australia on the East Coast there. Okay. Uh, uh, so that started off my career down under and then was lucky enough to be, come to the States in 99 for a, head up a program for the U.S. Winter Olympic program for ski and snowboard, and I've been in the States ever since. Now, how did you get involved in uh, coaching skiers and snowboarders down in Australia? Well, what happened originally was I was uh, working with elite athletes uh, as part of a sort of national campaign in sort of the preparation for Sydney Olympics, if okay. we look way back. Uh, and then I was lucky enough and fortunate enough, I was, I was living on the north coast of New South Wales, a place called Byron Bay, which is a beautiful surf spot. And mm. We just started training surfers and surf lifesavers and windsurfers and and we had a had a nice little community of uh, athletes sort of rolling along in those sort of more action sport genres, and sort of so I was combining some of the Olympic preparation stuff with this sort of community that wasn't that engaged. So at that point, wasn't that engaged or involved in sort of those techniques. And you know, lo, lo and behold, after ninety two Olympics in uh, Barcelona and in that period following, there was this interest in sort of translational of in the winter programs of bring snowboard coming to the forefront so board sports started to yeah. get engaged and they just said hey you've been working with surfers what about snowboarders right so i started started working you know, as you do you just start working with them and learn as you go right and uh at, at a certain point i ended up just sort of working with the australian national team and then I bumped into some American coaches when we were on tour in Europe, and they said, well, wow, that sounds like fun. Why don't we try that over here? And then I got a call. There you go. It was that simple. <laughs> That's the way things work. So what, yeah. what type of techniques were you using back then with the surfers and snowboarders? What were you having success with? Well, way back then, I think the simple model was I was really lucky to sit and learn from some great performance people in Australia who are already engaged in our big three, swimming, rowing, you know, and the rugby programs and the cricket and the, the sort of national sports of Australia. And so they had developed through the Australian government, uh, the New Australian Institute of Sport Program, which was fundamentally a replication of the Eastern model, the Eastern European model, the East German model, where you don't have very many athletes. I think our Australian population was about 20 million back then. Mm. And we want to compete really, really well on the, in the Olympic stage as a country. It's kind of a passion of Australians. Right. And so they said, well, let's, we don't have a lot of resources. Let's aggregate all the best talent at the Institute in Canberra. And then let's provide this, like almost three to one at that point, scientific training uh, recovery support system around them. So that system was pretty advanced with respect to the Olympic movement. 
rolling over to sports that hadn't been that engaged in that sort of high level formal scientific sort of training like at that point surfing hadn't hadn't sort of made that leap uh it was like well let's just bring little pieces of that across so the techniques and tools were things like just a little bit more organization around structure of training um, different approaches to training and and i did a very short stint in the military nothing to, to speak of but i all right, some of the techniques we learned about team and leadership, let's bring some of that in. So we started to build those connections to the military communities. And really, in the early days, it was just, you know, applying some of the science that we'd learned from these sports, at the same time, paying close attention to what was really important to them, right. which is this freedom of expression mm-hmm. and unstructured environments and not trying to crush them with this sort of science. And at the, at the same time, modifying what they were doing a little bit so that within their world, we were able to get sort of incremental gains. So it was a combination of a little bit more of the scientific piece, but recognizing this sort of extraordinary way they learn and uh, develop on their own way and mm-hmm. the environment as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So just how do we accentuate the environment, giving them the lessons they need? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the classic example I use is you've got these guys performing in staggeringly tough environments in life and death, in some cases, in the big wave community. Right. Never had a coach, never had a trainer, never had a nutritionist. Extraordinary. And, yeah. and, and so had they gotten good without us, what the hell were we doing? So it was a real point of reflection for me as well. That's a fascinating insight. You're right. I mean, that's all just trial and error. And the human being's ability to, to just learn from its environment and, to, you know, own intuitive skills like some of these big wave servers. I mean, that's that's pretty extraordinary. But like you said, if you can bring some discipline to their training and nutrition and sleep and recovery, then it can make a big difference, right? Yeah. And so um, so you came to the United States, and then um, how, did this, uh, how did the relationship with Red Bull come about? How long have you been working with them? So I did about 10 years with U.S. Ski and Snowboard okay. and sort of building the human performance program there, and, and I sort of got a call from Red Bull. So the sort of translation was it was bringing, you know, it's the same sort of experience I had on top of all the deep experience that already existed in the U.S. Olympic movement, and it was just a shift in perspective and the, the Aussie accent maybe allowed me to get away with a bit more than the yeah. others. And, uh, and, we, and together we built the program at Ski and Snowboard. We, we, got a lot, we got really deep into the science there and the technologies, which was really exciting. Then when Red Bull, I was working and sort of with a couple of Red Bull athletes at that time. And I think word got around within the Red Bull community that, uh, that we'd had this sort of program running, and they said, we'd like to do that for Red Bull. Mm. So I just got another call and said, hey, would you build a program like that for us? And for me, it was like coming home a bit, because at that point, action sports was kind of where I'd started. Right. <laughs> Surf and so and I'd gone more pure Olympic and professional sports during that 10-year period. And I was like, oh, wait, let's go back. And then again, revisiting that idea that the environment had taught these individuals everything they need to know. Mm-hmm. That it had, they were excelling at the top of their game across these extraordinarily What, what exciting- type of sports does Red Bull sponsor and involved oh, in? Yeah. Um, I mean, God, I think we're in 167 different sports. Really? So, Holy and God. That's, yeah. So um, there's about 1,000 athletes in the portfolio globally. So at any given time, you're going to be asked to, to probably, in most cases, uh, work with a program that you've never had any experience with. No kidding. So, yeah, so one of the things we basically do is sit down and, again, they spend a lot of time learning and listening from these communities and understanding how they got good right. and then see if we can add something from our side or just even reuse that with another group. Yeah. What are some of the most interesting uh, athletic endeavors that you've been involved with at, at Red Bull? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I think, um, oh, God, there's a lot. Um, fun One's early days was sort of building up a, a sort of a, a, an Olympic-quality program for surfing. That mm-hmm. was one where we really brought in a lot of coaching and, and, and science and started to really frame up a, a nice model for them and at the same time keep the, the essence of the sport alive. Going through the different years, the, some of the big uh, events like Robbie Madison's after Triumph jump in Las Vegas, the New Year's Limits, Travis jump in the cars. There's a lot of Olympic programs running. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, the Stratos jump was a fun one. I mean, the, 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 it, there's a yeah, there's, there's been some stuff. Yeah, yeah, we really varied. So that the um, 
let's talk about the Stratus jump. That was uh, Felix uh, Baumgartner. Did I say his name right? Felix Baumgartner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. he um, set the world record for the highest uh, parachute jump ever, right? Has that been broken since he did it? Yeah, uh, an executive from Google went up and uh, popped it by around 10,000 feet, I think. So, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, I think he actually, you know, Colonel Joseph Kittinger started that sport in 1960. We broke a record in, you know, 12, 2012, and then he, um, then they popped it again. So I think it's, uh, I think it's kind of becoming something, something cool to do nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> so with Felix, what were the things that were really critical from a performance standpoint to really dial in for him? I mean, if you're going up to the stratosphere and jumping out of a freaking balloon, I mean, that's pretty hairy. Yeah, I think I think Felix, and you know, one of the fundamental things was just his, uh, you know, the, the the more generic stuff was the overall his role and identity within this program. Uh, I think one of the fundamental steps was just him coming from a base jumping, yeah, background and skydiving background. He fundamentally was engaged now with a uh, flight test program, mm-hmm. two or three hundred experts in. NASA, Air Force, military, mm-hmm. Air, you know, working on this big program with lots of people. And I think uh, in the early stages, that was a challenge for him to define his role as a leader in that. And then uh, we used uh, Mike Gervais as a psychologist to help overcome some fears that he developed around and actually the, the claustrophobia within the suit, which he mm-hmm. spoke about. And then we, yeah, so we're moving from that, but then fundamentally also just his own physical performance just getting him used to sort of training slightly differently because those pressure suits are are tough to move around in um, right. they they're, they're really challenging it's it's sort of it's not shown in all the space movies how hard it is to actually articulate and move within a pressure suit oh i bet they make it look easy like it's just a wetsuit or something yeah. yeah so he just even moving around in that thing he had to work on a different set of sort of core training strength and conditioning training and then an interesting thing was the classic sort of stress inoculation work you know within getting him physically fatigued working hard intervals that sort of thing and then asking him to repeat emergency egress procedures you know that kind of stuff that that sort of stuff the military is you know yeah yeah just ramping up the stress of the training and then asking him to be very composed and solve more uh, cognitive-based problems, whether that be egresses, like I said, or, you know, in case of fire, what's your standard operating procedure, you know, and that sort of combination training really was where he ended up. So it, it was good. And then, you know, the big team picture, this entire organization, the flight tests, you got Red Bull, you got Felix, just that whole dynamics of the community working together, one goal was a big part of our, uh, our focus as well. Wow. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, was that... To work on a project like that, was that just one of several projects you had going on, or was that like a consuming full-time thing? It was uh, it was consuming, but as always here, there were multiple things happening at the same time, so you're always balancing it. So you're flying out to Roswell where we're doing the testing and working out there and coming back here and working on you know next Olympic snow program, whatever it may be. Right. So it was always a balance, yeah. Yeah. So, Andy, with all these different um, athletes and programs you've worked with, Can you tell us, like, if you've been able to distill some, like, fundamental principles of peak performance that, you know, cross all domains, you know, all athletic domains and, you know, that elite performers kind of have these specific, you know, or leverage these specific skills or, you know, characteristics? Yeah, it's the it's the qu- million dollar question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> right, I know. You know, I've got my uh, pen handy, right? I'm right. Yeah, here. right. And then if I say something intelligent, send it back to me. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, the reality, I think, is that what I you know the fundamental things, and, and it's not a crop out. I think for me, is the passion. Yeah. You know, I, I I keep coming back to it because if anything, everything else is, seems to be you know the individual seems to find a way to manifest themselves and what they bring to the table and do things that are surprising and when we do pretty rigorous evaluations scientifically qualitatively interview style across our top performers and review type high stakes environments we get a plethora of answers mm-hmm. <laughs> of how they got there and the, and the data shows that there's a baseline to be good but then to be extraordinary we can't we can't predict past that point. So we can get you from good to great, so to speak. That, mm-hmm. that There's some basic markers there. But once we get from 
great to extraordinary, there seems to be no model. But if you come back to passion, what does passion do for you? First and foremost, 10,000 hours or 20,000 hours or 100,000 hours of practice, whatever that number you want to believe in, will drive you crazy. And you'll only get up in the morning in the dark to do that training if you love what you do. Absolutely. I think on the easy sunny days, they'll do the work. It's when it's miserable and raining and horrible and yeah. you step out the door and, 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 and that requires passion. Yeah, we used to say everyone wants to be a frogman on a sunny day. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think unless you love what you're doing, unless you truly, truly uh, 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 enjoy that, it's hard to get up when yeah. it gets tough. Yeah. When you fail when it gets tough. It's hard to stand back up unless you're passionate about what you're doing. Right. So I think the passion then allows you to manifest these skills that we see, like hardiness and courage mm-hmm. and and you know, resilience, whatever you want to call those other factors that layer in. And right. I think that's the core piece of it. Yeah. And how useful is that to people? I don't know. But uh, you know, then we get into the more fundamental skills. I think their critical decision making under high stakes, their ability to be gentle with themselves. Mm-hmm. That's lessons mm-hmm. they don't they understand the intrinsic value of failing right putting themselves out there falling short learning mm-hmm. and that value proposition versus oh shit i made a mistake mm-hmm. uh, i think um, the general sense of empathy and really humility that they demonstrate at the top of the game yeah and, that, and you know i'm not saying they're not all they're not all you know you know uh, Buddhist monks, by any sense of the matter, but they know when they're on it what they need to do, and they do it well, and they, they don't look for external validation of that. I think that's an important part of it. And uh, you know, so I think those are the fundamental characteristics that we see. You know, right. and and I think our version of that is then how do we make you better at who you are right. to allow you better at what you do? Yeah, I love that. That's that's very similar to the message that I try to teach, and and that performance stems from from depth of character. So, yep. so build the character and then, you know, go out and perform. And, and I agree with you that passion is so important. And one of the things that I've been kind of struggling with, and I think it's probably a, uh, the answer is both thing, but do you think like with the athletes you've worked with, are they like, do they immediately find a passion for their sport or does that passion develop as a result of, of long years of success or, or, you know, struggle and success with a sport? Like, do some of these athletes wake up at when they're five years old and say, I'm going to be a surfer, it's the only thing I want to do in my life, and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to surf the big waves of Hawaii? Or do they start surfing, you know, the little waves in Coronado, and then next thing you know, like eight years later, they're like, you know what, I really like this. I'm developing a passion for it, you know? It's an interesting question, isn't it? You know? Uh, yeah, and I've seen it all. Honestly, I've seen the kids who put the poster up when they're five, yeah. And that's them. And they love it. And that, again, and that, at that age, you see them. I remember a young surfer in West Oz. He became world class. And you know, hearing his mum say, no matter how lousy a dad was, every day he would be out there. Right. He just loved it. And no one else in the water. He would, it would be raining, horrible, crappy conditions, and he would be out there. So, and then that kid went on, and just that was his dream, right. I think. But at the same time, there are people who, in some cases, see very talented across a portfolio of things, right. school, multiple sports, and they just find that they this one is the one I'm good at, and and you know they find that they get positive reinforcement for being good at that, right. and I think they start well, this is great, being good at something really yeah. fun, yeah. and then and then they just say wow, and then they grow and they develop within that framework, yeah. um, Fake and it I think until you make it right, yeah. <laughs> And then, and then, of course, you see the other side, which is the you know uh, the classic example. I think everyone knows it's someone like Andre Agassi who hated it at the end. Yeah, interesting. They get burnt out. Uh, yeah. You, if you read his book, he, he hated tennis. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, and, and I think interesting. And and then there's multiple occasions where we've interviewed athletes after the biggest moment in their career, or post a, a world record, or Olympics, or whatever, and they're like, you know. It was great. I loved it, but thank God it's over. <laughs> right. Time for something new. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're fair enough, too. Uh, so, you know, I, I completely sat on the fence on that one, but I, 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 someone else has to figure that one out first. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> it really is interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I think the lesson there, take this to, like, normal, everyday person, you know, 
is great. Good on you if you find you have a passion to be a doctor, lawyer, you know, Navy SEAL. Awesome. Run with it. Yeah. But if you don't have that, then then choose something you're good at. Do it well. Act as if your hair is on fire every day and develop a passion for it as best you can, or at least for an expertise within that domain. You know, and I think that that works as well. And it sounds like the Red Bull athletes have that. You have a yeah. mix of that. Yeah, I think if you're good at something, even if it's not the pure passion that burns you alive, if you're good at it, it you get the success and recognition, which again allows you to get through the tough times. Right, right, and and, and, and you feel like you've got some safety. And if and if versus if you suck at it, and then you hit a wall, you're like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and ultimately, that that what we're talking about is psychology, mental and emotional management, really, because that's passion is going to keep you positive and with forward momentum, and you're going to be thinking and feeling energetically positively toward your performance toward your sport one of the cool. things we say at seal fit is negativity destroys performance because we feel that at a team level or and as an individual so if you're passionate then you know like you said all else being equal if you're dealing with a lot of elite athletes like we were in the seal teams everyone's an elite athlete everyone's eating well everyone's training their asses off everyone's supported by an amazing system but the the top performers were the ones that are most passionate like you said because they're yeah. energetically positive and they go they go into every intense mission with a smile on their face even though someone's throwing rounds at them which is crazy I, I think you're right and I think and if you don't have that if you haven't found a passion that's not to say it's the end of the world it's just right. I think it's just the opportunity to hey explore and keep exploring yeah keep just trying stuff and you know you know maybe you never really get that thing that you want once you want to set the world on fire with but th- that exploration in its own right is a is a real life learning experience yeah, yeah absolutely red bull's kind of on the you know as a sponsor and you know promoter you're kind of on the edge of extreme sports what are some of the more interesting emergent sports you see coming out like um, i'm i'm having a podcast with my friend andy stump later in the week and he just set the world record in wingsuit flying. I mean, mm-hmm. I've done a lot of parachute jumps, but I've never done a wingsuit flight. But that just looks insane. In fact, I, I, I saw a video recently, and it was like there was no dialogue in this video, but it was like this mass wingsuit jump somewhere in France, a really famous place. And like the red guy went off, and then the green, and then the blue, and then the black. And then, you know, like 12 guys jumped on the same route, and the camera guy was last. And they're flying down, and all of a sudden, he just flies over the blue guy who was crash-landed, you know, <laughs> D-E-D, dead. And I was like, holy cow, yeah, right? Yeah. That's an intense sport, you know? 12, yeah, I think 13 those... men enter, 12 men exit, right? Oh, oh my God. That, yeah, was, and I think that's, that, that's what we see so much of here as a – and as you know, with those sports, when they're in their, in their beginning, in their infancy, in their, there's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and, you, and you're in a high-stakes environment, and one of the challenges even in that sport is, you know, just the, it looks like you're flying, but you're not. You're falling. You're falling, and you're, in some cases, you're feet from the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you just, I think, and, and a slight miscalculation there can be catastrophic. So, uh, yeah, well, we love all that stuff. I think it's fascinating. What's really got me sort of interested in the last few years is the sports that are not in front of us yet, the ones that are currently where you see this connection between technologies and interest and passions, mm. designing these new sports that are sort of going to be in the forefront in the next few years. Can we call, what's yeah, like, like hoverboard surfing. <laughs> hoverboard surfing or even the esports community, what's happening there or this sort of human I saw a, a virtual reality set up recently where it looked literally like man-on-man Tron. You remember that? Yeah. Disney? yeah. Okay. And you were actually catching discs and throwing them and dodging around oh, in this cool. warehouse. And I was like, holy hell. So what I've been really trying to think about and that's sort of with certain elements of our community is what does that future state of human performance right. look like? And partially that's going to be driven by what the future state of sports is going to be look like. Right. And and you think as it's going to be as dramatic from what we can see as the example someone shared with me recently, I'm stealing their thunder, where they said, you know, before, maybe it was you, but before we had the Olympics, it was just track and field, and then someone invented a bike. Now we had cycling in the Olympics. Right. It's going to be like that. Yeah. Like you're talking about like augmented athletes. Augmented environments. Augmented environments. Are, yeah. Uh, human augmentation with human robotics, cyborg mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of frameworks i mean 
people are working on systems that are just going to increase human capacity tenfold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that will happen. So what are those sports look like? You know, you yeah, and it's interesting. You're going to have the purists who say just like, you know, we don't allow um, augmentation by blood doping or, you know, Mm-hmm. Or steroids, you know, so it's not fair to have, you know, some sort of robotic device, you know, or connected to the uh, artificial cloud. But then, of course, the people will experiment and those sports will develop. You know, they may not make it in the Olympics right away, but eventually, you know. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a great program. I don't have the name right. I don't think it's called the Cyborg Olympics. And it's really? a program uh, that's held like an Olympic event or around an Olympic event to be, you know, Someone can fact check me on all that, but the the concept, as it was explained to me, was yeah, these extraordinary groups around the world, world working in human robotics and human prosthesis development, getting together and having a a, a human machine, so like a so a prosthetic, uh, no rules prosthetics, basically. So you can, if you've got a fast set of robotic legs because you're a double amputee, then you compete in these events, and it's basically a competition between not only the people but the, the teams of roboticists. Right. And, 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 but what's that going to do? Well, it's going to be fun to watch and extraordinary to sort of see the progression, but it's going to pioneer the space of human artificial augmentation and, right. and prosthesis development. So that's going to drive a whole next generation of artificial limbs for people who have, have been unfortunate to lose a limb, as an example. So yeah. I think even if it, the purists sit in the Olympics should always stay where it's at, there's going to be these other emergent programs. Right which allow us to not only benefit people but also have an entertainment value and, and the technologies are going to drive a lot of that and that's, uh, that's exciting for me to see. If it, anything to do to move that industry forward to help people m- navigate better if I'm being unfortunate to have a, an accident that, like that. So yeah, it's exciting. I, in a way, it's not, that, it's not really much different than you know, the, the scientists building the fastest human-powered bicycle or, or or automobile, and then the nut who's you know crazy enough to drive it mm-hmm. as the athlete, right? So mm-hmm. that, that's a that's a merging of technology and, and human performance. So now we're, we're just they're just getting a little bit closer, you know, like where the, the technology is not being bolted to the human as opposed to the human stepping into the car. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I think when Oscar Pistorius competed in the Olympics with his uh, prosthetic legs, and that the challenge was uh, absolutely letting someone being open at the Olympics to let anyone compete, the challenge and what the door that I think was opened then, which no one really, unless you're close to sport, really thought through was, oh, wow, now we have, what if the leg is better than a normal leg? (laughs) 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 Which is a fantastic problem to have. It is a good problem to have. In sport, where you've got rules, you're like, oh, I get this bit of dilemma. I don't think it's an issue. I think it'll sort itself out. I don't think we'll have anyone... Anyone cutting off their legs so they can wear a prosthetic, though, that's, that's not that that was ever considered as a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if the legs are better and you've you know, got to go in for a knee replacement when you're 70 and they say, well, actually, the leg you can have, can, you can go running again. You're like, well, why not take the whole thing and strap on a good one? You know? I tell you what, humans never fail to surprise me with what yeah. they're willing to do. So I'm, I'm going to sit back and watch. <laughs> I know, right. It's going to be a fun ride, that's for sure. Hi, I want to take a moment to tell you about a cool new product that I've tested recently called the PowerDot. The PowerDot is an app-based wearable tech device that provides EMS, or electrical muscle stimulation. It's simple to use and to control from your cell phone. It has a number of pre-programmed routines, such as for recovery, for warming up, for cooling down, healing, and also, believe it or not, for developing strength and speed. This thing is cool. It's powered out as FDA approved, and my team has been testing it for a while, and we love it. Now, the folks over at Powered Out have put together a special deal for us. Trust me, this is a game changer, so I think you're going to want to check it out. So go to mypowerdot.com and use the discount code HUYAMINDS, HUYAMINDS, H-O-O-Y-A-H-M-I-N-D-S, for a 10% discount exclusively for you, listeners of the Unbeatable Mind podcast. You can also find the link and the code in the show pages note. Okay, back to our program. Booyah. Let's talk about um, something more down to earth, and that is uh, hacking creativity. Um, what, what does that mean to you? How do we hack creativity and unlock you know, more uh, traditional concepts of human potential from like the inner domain, you know, 
yeah. vision, passion, you know, just energy, you know, working with energy. Like, how do we tap into the level of energy that Bruce Lee had or, or that a Taoist master has, you know, for, for today, everyday sports people? Yeah, you know, that was the essence of the process and the project, which is, you know, still live, hackingcreativity.com. You can go and see the, the prototype of it. But if you think of our models of performance, and no matter who you are, you either have one formally or you have one in your head. But the idea that there's, this is, you know, the, the, the physical breakdowns and the, and the more psychological, spiritual and emotional breakdowns. And what we've seen in the business in the last, you know, 20 odd years is that the, uh, we've gotten really, a lot better at what we can measure. Mm-hmm. So the wearables and the technologies and the heart rate variability and all these mm-hmm. things that you strap on and kind of look at now. And, people, and it's great information and it's, mm-hmm. and, the, and it's provided a lot of great insight into how to improve performance. Two things happen in the sort of process of watching these athletes sort of organically get to become as good as they get in the program here and also thinking about those elements of performance that we see captured in, say, your SEAL team ethos mm-hmm. or written on the lock above the locker rooms. When you talk to the top coaches in the country, that those frameworks like courage and discipline and and heart and hardiness or grit, whatever you want to call it, are, are the mm-hmm. things that they rate as the most important character, mm-hmm. essentially. Right. So we thought about those two fundamental issues. So if if, if the best in the world redefine what's possible in a game or in a sport, or in the military, or in any effort, asset of life. They are showing us what's possible. Those groundbreaking people at the top of the field redefine what's possible in that particular sport or field. Right. So by default, they're creative. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, typically, we only think of the culture, communities, arts and, as the creative ones, but in this context, everybody has a creative wings to it. Yep. Then you think about the idea that, well, what are, why does everyone put these things above the locker room or on the ethos or in the mantra that they quote as being critical for this organization or team mm-hmm. and that led us to the idea that, okay so creativity as a construct is a powerful tool for the very very top performers but we're not actually training it per se right. right can we put a model around creativity a construct around creativity that allows us to put some some framework that would then allow us to train against it mm-hmm. it's not what the answer to creativity is be very clear. It's no, let's just have a conversation around the topic, see what insights we can get, and see if there's something there that we can say, hey, we have our elite athletes coming in next week. We're going to do a creativity session with them, for want of a better word. At the same time, if we can get that model working around something as abstract as creativity, then let's just rip creativity out and put character in there. Right. Have measure, construct, put a model around character. And not to say people aren't already doing this, but we just wanted to see if we could kind of bring this together using some of the new technology. So what we did was to say, take creativity as a construct. Let's go and get the machine, so a computer, to read all the research on creativity and and specifically the process of training creativity. And so we aggregated about 15,000 articles and the machine organized them and, and structured them according to some basic AI deep learning models. And that sits there on the hackingcreativity.com platform. Mm. At the same time, we know research only gets you so far. Right. <laughs> You've got to talk to the practitioners. So let's interview 500 people who are considered to be highly creative. And again, not just painters and artists, but military leaders, social workers, policymakers, scientists, artists, of course, musicians, and use that same algorithmic intelligence that we used to organize the literature and apply that to the structure of their interview. Mm. So you've got, basically, you've got the research piece being organized by the machine. Now we've got the, the, the what we call the expert intelligence being organized. Right. And then they say, what you can do on that platform is you can go and participate as well. So they get the world to weigh in now. Mm. So what's the group think on this topic? Right. And then the, and the idea is you then bring those three versions of or definitions of conversations of creativity together and what's that insight you get in the middle and so that program has been running for about three years uh it's still we're learning all sorts of things and we do train creative processes with our elite talent it's been something we've always been doing but now we're like how do we make it more structured and once we have structure can we progress it so 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 when i push the button what, what comes out well basically at the end game we'd like to have if we can get to where we want to be is we 
first and foremost, we break down some common myths about creativity, mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm not creative, I don't paint. No. Right. right. You figure out a different way to approach a mission objective. You know, you figure out a different way to perform a trick in right. a judge sport. You figure right. out a different way to train so you run faster in the yeah. 100 meters. Oh, yeah, I'm with you. Like that, some of the most creative guys I've ever seen were SEALs who were like the epitome of MacGyver. I mean, they could fix or solve anything anywhere with, with anything. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and so I think we do a good job in these elite communities of selecting for it, but you right. don't sit down and say, let's do it. And you do problem-solving challenges, but you don't, well, let's train the element of creativity right. for Yeah. So that's one element we want out of it. The other element is to sort of say, hey, if we can get a communities of people together, and of course we don't just work with athletes here, we have musicians and artists potentially, e-sports, et cetera, in our program, what can we offer elite talent in non-athletic domains? Mm-hmm. And innovation, if you swap for creativity, or um, problem solving, if you swap that for creativity, those things are powerful tools that we want to bring across to those communities as well. And then, of course, that translates across then to the business communities we work with, entrepreneurs, and say, all right, innovation's a hot topic. That's, that, can we train you mm-hmm. accordingly based on what we've learned in some of these techniques and strategies we've learned that others have used? And is there an opportunity there? And one thing we have learned is that there's a, you know, these got these extraordinary creatives across all these portfolios, and they all do it very differently. Interesting. Same models that we see in physicality. So I think people fall into the trap of, oh, the top five creative habits of, of highly creative people sort of thing, and then I don't have them, I should do them. And it's like, well, hell no. That's one way. Figure right. out your way. Yeah. And I think if summarize all these conversations, it seems to point to this notion, which is, in, in my terms, in, in my world, really uh, exciting. We've always known that the individualized and personal approach is the way to go with the best talent in the world. Mm-hmm. It's just a resource issue to put that kind of structure around people. Right. But now technology is enabling personalized solutions right. on scale. Right. And so now you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. You can map your own trajectory. Right. And you can become the master of your destiny. And if we can give you some fundamental tools and lessons from all these other people and then you've charge ahead with the conviction that you've got what you need but you're also going to have to figure out a bit on your own i think we start to get into this real idea of democratizing talent so yeah such that yeah. make a bigger impact i think that's terrific and i know i agree with you it's going to be a huge area for the young technologists and uh, young athletes to start to experiment with personalized nutrition you know we saw michael phelps use this, you know sleep monitor and you know uh, variable heart rate monitors and all these these uh, quantified self stuff. I worked a little bit with the women's cycling team at the at the last Summer Olympics, and they got a silver medal like completely out of the blue. They beat uh, UK in the velodrome, and they um, were like early pioneers in using the quantified self and really dialing in their sleep and their nutrition. I was helped them on a, at a team level, you know, kind of organize themselves to be more effective. And boom, you know, it was like this complete like out of the left field, silver medal win. So I think you're right. It's fascinating uh, what's going to happen with when we have personalized, like a, a device that can tell us, you know, with a pinprick, what food we need for optimal health or performance. And I, how far away do you think we are from that? I think it's already, uh, in many cases, a lot of the optimization on individual levels there. You just got to cut through the clutter. Yeah. So I think the knowledge to be, to do this is actually exist. I think the applications are three to five years away in terms of some of the software platforms and hardware necessary, especially as you get into the more the, the brain stuff. But I think what's so exciting is that if this idea of what works for you is the essential version of what we've identified as a key characteristic of an elite performer, mm-hmm. you don't fall into this trap of, well, what are they doing? I'm going to do that. Right. Yeah. And, and because – if you do that, the fundamental issue is you're following. Right. If you're following the best in the world, you're still following. Yeah, and you're still behind them. <laughs> you're still behind them, and they're loving that because they just keep pining. So you start to bring this idea of your own self-exploration and then using what we kind of see as a general trend as a foundation. Let's not ignore what's out there. But then having the ability to think about your own path and trajectory and, as you said, your own development is whatever that 
may take for you being the sort of driving force. You apply these lessons where they may work, and if they don't work, you'll see straight away. And that way, again, I think we get to this state where, yeah, for Michael, great, wonderful, did what it did for him. You look at that and go, yeah, I'll have, a, I'll, I'll take that on board, but I'll also look across here to these other performers in other communities, and I'll draw from them, and then I build my own model. And as I said, unfortunately, in the past, it's taken teams of people to do that, but that's the breakthroughs that I think we'll see in the next three to five years when that becomes yeah, when, an opportunity. Yeah, when your coach is an artificial intelligence, you know, cloud-based agent who gets to know you better than any team of coaches ever could. And is able to guide, you know, help you kind of tap your own intuitive because it's giving you real-time feedback. I mean, so you were recently, you told me you recently at MIT kind of having conversations about these types of things with some young uh, big brain uh, uh, technophiles. What, what um, interesting thing came out, came out of that discussion? Well, again, I think from our, from my perspective, whether it's the MITs of the world or all, all these other extraordinary communities where, in, where we get to sort of work with it's the that the, yeah the, i think the future's in good hands first and foremost there's some bright young people out <laughs> that's there. good to hear because yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you read the newspaper you, <laughs> you <know>? think otherwise <laughs> yeah yeah i know i think there might be a bit more of a rough spot but i think hopefully at some point these these kids are staggering what they're doing nowadays for me it was challenging them i said i do i want to see what does it look like what is it going to take for us to build an artificial coach what are the and the technologies are there, but how do we manifest it? What are some of the problems we can solve? And I think the things we're seeing right now is, and, and hacking creativity is a proxy for some of that AI coaching models. If the machine, and it can already basically see better than we see right. on multiple levels, if it's in your car, it can project and take in more than you can take. If it's in a, and if it's in a, a VR an empathetic training environment, it can read your micro-expressions, your facial expressions, as well as not better than we can. And that's an argument because a lot of that's subconscious. Yeah. But think about that model. The machine suddenly has access to all the training tips and training drills that you're going to potentially use as a coach. And it says it's got all them at your fingertips. So you don't have to remember any of that anymore. It can actually go through, and if it's nutrition for a day, it can cut through the crap peel out the important research efficaciously based uh, findings and apply that to you because it knows your blood and all the rest of it and your genotype, whatever it may be, or, or gut biome. And then at the same time, it can tell you how that person's doing in the day. It can look at you and say, hey, you know, they're struggling a little. Now, that's what a great coach already does. It's right. be real. But it's hard. Right. It's hard to get to that level unless you focus. So if we can push that over to the – the, the, the sort of artificial platform, what does that leave for us? Well, I think that allows us to be and then focus on being more human, allows us to focus on those things that make us more human. So the creativity, the the empathizing, the, the personal growth that we can show to ourselves and also to others because we all have the opportunity to sort of that's where we can spend our time and that's the piece that the AI can't catch up with yet. It won't, for, as I understand, for a long time. So this whole, our big conversations with all these groups are, what's this future state looking like? What are we going to have to do to stay ahead of the curve in terms of what we need to know to optimise people? Uh, I think the, the opportunities are staggering, but there's going to be some interesting sociological and human-machine evolutionary-based problems that we're going to have to have tough yep. conversations around because it's going to be... It's going to be a staggering change and rate of change, right. and I think it's it's hard to gut check in all the excitement. Yeah, for sure, and it's coming fast. I love what you said, though. I, I love this notion that the technology can free us up from some of the industrial age kind of machinistic, if that's the right word, processes mm -hmm. around you know coaching, training, performance, even just everyday life, and to help us be more human. And what that what that means to me is something that we've been working with here at Sealfit is the whole emotional world. Like, how do we feel more? How do we understand our emotional life more? How do we use those emotions for power and performance? How do we avoid degradating emotions? And there's not much languaging or, or work around this in the West. And to me, like when we talk about passion, it's emotionality brought to your external world. And if mm -hmm. technology can kind of like take care of some of the fundamental stuff and help us like feel healthy and optimal every day because our sleep is dialed in, our nutrition is dialed in, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we're kind of in balance because our artificial coach is kind of helping us get there. 
then that's going to allow us to go deeper on the emotional level. And I think, you know, if I were to take a, take a spiritual spin on this, you know, one of the possible people say, you know, spiritual leaders say that we're here to have, to, to learn lessons. And we uh-huh. learn those lessons, not cognitively, but emotionally. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so the reason we're human is largely because we're, we can feel. Uh-huh. And we can feel at a deep level and, and create meaning through that feeling. Now, that's a little exoteric, but bringing you back to performance, if you have a deep feeling of success and power and meaning around your performance and the technology has allowed you to stay with that feeling and cultivate it and grow it so that you can carry it and hold it through your performance. Wow. You know, that's yeah. when you're yeah, going to layers of passion. That's I mean, spirituality is one of the pillars of our program. And, you know, whether it's fundamentally just ripping off the Eastern breathing techniques right. for resetting or refocusing yeah. or, or a deeper conversation, as you said, being more in touch with who you, you are. When the world, I know the world and the challenges of, say, the machine growing and taking over a lot of jobs is going to create all sorts of interesting dilemmas for us to solve. Right. But I actually see the positive side of it. I see it like, as you say. Me too. If it's taking care of business and we get a, an ability then to explore more of what it means to be human, then that's a huge opportunity. Right. And if we can explore, again, get back in touch with ourselves, the environment, the world around us and other people, because we're not worried about all this other stuff, that's the opportunity in human optimization. Yeah. I don't see it as a, I don't see a machine AI as being in that context a challenge. I see it as being an opportunity. Right. Uh, yeah, but of course it's 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 not replacing my job right now, so I have that luxury. <laughs> Good point, right? That first world problem, you know. But I think that is where, if we can get that conversation elevated and we can focus on that, then what does that mean if we can pass that down to the classroom? So if the classroom, if the machines. The, the knowledge base, the eye device in your pocket knows everything. It's already done. Yeah. Then we move. You got to figure out what are we what are we teaching and training that community. Where well, with, you got to ask the right question. Then. Yeah. And to know what the right question is 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 a much more complex dilemma to solve than do tell me the capitals of the country. I don't need to know that anymore. It's in the it's in the book, um, and it's with me all the time. And you know, I'm being very black and white here, but that's the subtleties that I think even coaching and human optimization and all these worlds we work in are going to have to face is how do we take what's possible now through the technology but not lose sight of the fact that what it means to be a human on this planet and right. and, and give us the free time to sit down and contemplate and reflect right. and all right. those things which the spiritual masters have known for thousands of years. Right. And, and, yeah, I, and I call people them the original too busy and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Too much and survival mode to get it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been surviving. And I think we're going through a state now, just you know, to rip off your platform a little bit. People are getting a little fed up with the constant connectedness and all the rest of it and, the, and those challenges. And that's, you know, the original performance masters, the spiritual leaders. Right. We're developing strategies to help communities thrive, individuals thrive and survive, and where that's our job in the future. Right. Fantastic. Sounds like there's a book there, man. I think yeah. I think you need to take yeah. a sabbatical and write that one. <laughs> well, yeah, man. If I'd done more work, if I'd paid more attention in school in English, I could probably write one. But I'm, I'm not that guy, so uh, I just get the luxury of meeting extraordinary people who've kind of mastered all these spaces and the privilege to listen and learn from them. So terrific. That's 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 the wonder of it. So. Well, thank you, thank you for doing that and for doing what you do. And you've got a blog, right? Is that, where can people learn more about what you're doing at Red Bull and your own work? Uh, you know, I don't actually. I, I try. I try that social thing. On it's Facebook. tough. Isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I literally, I had an account on Facebook at some point and it stopped. Uh, the reality is, I think I just don't have time. I don't know how people have find the time to do this stuff. I think uh, you know what we try to do is we try. We're very open. We allow people, anyone at any time, and interest in our field, it's, uh, comes in here and spends half a day watching, looking. Oh no, kidding! To, All right, uh, you know. So, you know, I don't want to open the doors and have masses, not that that's going to happen, but people are very, we find by giving we get, mm-hmm. and by opening our doors, the rest of the world and our industry opens theirs, and we, right. we just get this great flow of people. So, you know, people are super passionate, and there's a bunch of 
clips have been pushed out about what we do and stuff, but there's always a chance to poke their head in here. And, so uh, Google AndyWalsh.com, uh, W-A-L-S-H-E, right? Is that, yeah, yeah, that kind of, that's that, a, that was my business I've had running for many years as an advisor, but I'm too busy now to do that. So now, <laughs> <laughs> You need an assistant yeah. to keep it up for you. Just follow you around with a camera or something like that. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think, there's, you know, I think that's the wonderful thing now is, is if in the next few years we start to consolidate some of our learnings and do get it out there in the right way, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, awesome. I super appreciate your time, Andy. I know everyone else who's listening to this found it as fascinating as I did. And uh, keep up the great work. Let's stay in touch and keep the dialogue going. I think this is going to be a fascinating few years. And I, I'm right there with you. I think by 2020, 2021 or something like that, you're going to see some really different and unique approaches to training and performance and integrating technology and artificial intelligence and robotics. It's going to be fascinating and you know, we're going to have to strap on our seatbelts. Yeah, you know, I think we'll be the old guys standing on the sidelines watching this next, but that's good. That's good. Exactly. I'm quite looking forward High to that. High five in the 20-year-olds. I already do that with when I try to train alongside the 18-year-old, 19-year-old SEAL candidates, and I'm like, yeah, I can hang, and then I'm like, oh, no, I can't. That's all right. I can do what I can do, but let them have their day. Awesome, Andy. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Um, uh, if you want to learn more about Andy and Red Bull, Google him, and uh, we'll, we'll keep encouraging him to write the book someday. And uh, remember to, to rate the podcast, and of course, most importantly, stay focused, train hard, do the daily work, uh, tap into that creative energy, and fire up your passion every day. Hoo-ya. Talk to you soon. Coach Devine out. Hey, if you really want to immerse yourself in the Seal Fit lifestyle, instead of just attending an event, then the Seal Fit online program is the great Thing to check out. The Elite Plus training will give you the tools you need to keep your performance honed and to amp it up in all of the five mounts, physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and your Kokoro spirit. The program is where you find the daily op-wad, on-ramp-wad, masters-wad, and soft-wad. Great tips on nutrition, recovery, durability, stamina, all the training exercise videos, other tips, and also premium content from myself and the entire SealFit coaching staff. It really is an amazing program. So supercharge your training by making an annual commitment to the SealFit online program, and specifically the Elite Plus. If you do so, we're going to send you a discount code for $200 off any SealFit event. This offer may end at any time. So go to SealFit.com slash commit. That's SealFit.com slash commit. And discover your peak performance through the SealFit online training community. Fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.T. Oh.